Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we are your co-hosts. So today I'm going to be discussing Inari, um, the Shinto deity Inari, not the town in Finland. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Common misconception there. And um, the legendary creature, the Kitsune. I'm so excited. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about indigo because, y'all, I'm trying to grow indigo this year. So I'm learning along with you. But also, it was one of those things where Nick and I were texting because we, you know, we hit the end of our, like, oh, my God, we have a year's worth of episode topics planned out. And so, of course, we're being, like, little ADD babies about it and just figuring it out as we go. And I was like, indigo? And then Nick was like, kitsune? Here we go. It was so, like, yeah. this came together so well. We're going and to Japan, y'all. We're going to Japan. Because uh, I'm going to Japan. And I just kind of think... Um, well, I, I'll get into it in my segment. Before we before we even like get into that, um, I do think when did you feel the magic this week is an important question to ask. I have I have two. I have two. So Oh, you have two. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't. Um, I have one, <laughs> but it's okay. It was a good one. So y'all might remember that two weeks ago when I came on, I was talking about how I had to do some adjustments on my haircut I had gotten, right? Right. Well, turns out the adjustments needed to be much bigger. So I had to go get a new haircut because it just like was not working. Anyone who has like a haircut with a bunch of layers knows what I'm saying when I'm like, it wouldn't lay correctly. It just wouldn't lay right. And I was like, this is, this is bad. So I Googled like great shag haircuts in Los Angeles and I found this person. Um, I'm just going to like give his handle because he's on Instagram at Atomic Sean name is Sean Lacey and we had the most fucking magical conversation talking about everyone's charts in our lives and talking about gardening and herbalism and it was just one of those moments where I I was like oh my god I met this person and immediately I was like magical people find magical people and my haircut's fantastic my hair's put up right now so you can't see it but it's like it's really good so it was just nice, like, getting to talk to someone else who gets it. And I did it in the middle of the work day. So I got to go back to work and be like, I'm so much better than everyone because I'm magical and I have great hair. But it was lovely. It was a really lovely afternoon, even though it was super rainy for the last, like, week in L.A. Well, and uh, I'm glad you survived the blizzard. Uh, yeah, there was snow at the Hollywood sign. It's fucking dumb. But, you know we hear <laughs> right right no so speaking of blizzards though um one of mine is that i have not i had not seen the falcons since the blizzard um until yesterday when i saw one of them yay so i was a little i was a little worried i mean i not so much for the falcons because i do know that they live in places like new york city too where like you know it gets like cold and snowy there so i'm like i'm sure they're fine but I was also kind of like, mm, but a bunch of trees did fall, so. Yeah, like really bad. So maybe they're like semi-homeless right now and like maybe they moved away and, you know, that would suck. And, but they're, but they're still here. They're still hanging out some, somewhere in the green belt, um, still looking. 
But I also did want to say I had this crazy dream and Kusto uh, was in it. Aww. And like in the dream, I was just like so happy to see him and it was really chill. And I was like obviously really emotional when I woke up, but like it was like a really happy dream. I love that. Um, it's so, like he was checking in after the Ollie scare. Right, right. No, I really feel that it was um, something akin to that, you know? Yeah. Anyway. So, so we're um, obviously starting something a little new this week, um, a little bit different. Because uh, I'm covering something that isn't really under the umbrella of modern witchcraft, right? Which, I mean, obviously we do what we want and we've done some pretty off-the-wall topics here. But, like, uh, we haven't really delved into, like, Shinto deities, per se. Um, and, like, I don't know if this is going to be a one-off to team with the theme for this episode or if people are going to be into it and then maybe I could do a bunch of Shinto deities kind of leading up to my trip to Japan. Because obviously, like, I do want to know, like, who all the temples and stuff that I'm visiting are for and, like, know the mythology behind that. If, even just a little bit. Like, even just on, like, a a surface level. I mean, it seems respectful. Like, not just interesting. It's, like, also being, like, a good visitor. Right. So, um, yeah, because I don't want to be, like, violently American dumb tourist mode. Like, I kind of want to know what's going on. Like, you know, for instance, um, there's also a lot of etiquette, you know, yeah. that goes into this. So it's like, if you see a little fountain, you're supposed to, like, wash your hands in it. Like, it's not like a water fountain. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, and there's like different ones and there's like some that you're supposed to like wash your mouth out a little bit and like drink the water. Um, some you're just supposed to wash your hands in. There's a couple you're supposed to wash your feet in. There's, that's like a whole thing. That's like a whole thing you have to do. Um, and yeah, it's like, I also do think it's important to kind of learn about this stuff since I'm going, because I think as like the community of witches, and which adjacent people like we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't just have that like curiosity right like oh, yeah. and you're totally right like witchy people i feel like we're we're like readers and learners and like it's there's a reason it's like we're the wise people quote I, unquote. I definitely feel that you know and it's like obviously i'm not exploring the idea of like converting to shinto um like, I'm not encouraging the other witches to get into Shinto. I just think the stories are interesting. Um, and it's going to be good to know all of the Lord mythology that go into these places that I'm going to be visiting so I can have more of this experience of knowing what's going on. Um, but I'm also just going to say plenty of y'all were probably into Inuyasha as a kid. Because the Venn diagram of witches and weebs is very, like, much almost a circle. Um, and I love that. Like, well, I think witches of a certain age. Like, uh, Oh, my God. We are of a certain age. They did release a historical American Girl doll now from the 90s. So. Right. I mean, we're getting there. Um and I do feel like that kind of cross-culturalism does exist in, like, the millennial witch space. Oh, so yeah. for all of the millennial witches out there, a lot of this 
shit that I'm going to be talking about with Inari is covered partially in Inuyasha. A lot of Shintoism is covered in Inuyasha, weirdly enough. Um, the more you know. So, and some of it's pretty accurate. Like, shout out to them for just being like, yeah, uh, you know, feudal Japan. And also, here's like Shinto 101 for the children. Shinto, but make it cool. <laughs> um... So, you know, like, this is also kind of for y'all. This is, this is, this is for you guys. Um, so, anyway, it's my party. I'm going to cover Shinto topics if I damn well please. So, without further ado, let's learn about Inari. And I'm sure there are a few of you out there that are, like, Shinto experts or whatever. And you're like, hey, wouldn't you start a series about Shinto deities with Amaratsu Omikami? And no, actually, because I'm not a classist for the people. Okay. Nick is for the people, notoriously. And um, according to a census by the Japanese Association of Shinto Tri Sh Shrines and Temples, oh my god, what an absolute mouthful, um, one-third of all major temples and shrines in the entire country are dedicated to Inari. They also note with that statistic that if you were to include roadside, field, and residential shrines, that percentage increases by a whole order of magnitude. Hot so, damn. The people love Inari. The people love Inari. So you can go to hell. And also, <laughs> I really wanted to cover Kitsune folklore this week. So again, I picked my topics. Inari was the right choice for this episode. I believe you. Um. So Inari. Inari is the kami or spirit of rice, tea, sake, warriors, foxes, fertility, agriculture, industry, and prosperity in general. God damn. So That's they have a lot. A, they have a lot on their plate. Um, and we're going to dive into the whole shape-shifting thing a lot later when we talk about the kitsune. Um, but one of the things I found most interesting about this deity is the fluidness of it all. Um, so Inari can be portrayed up to five different ways, from like a young sort of maidenly food goddess, to like an old man carrying rice, to like a fox, obviously, sometimes a snake, sometimes a dragon. Like it's really a choose your own adventure with Inari. And I'm actually going to talk about that aspect a lot more. Um, I mean, that to me makes it make sense why like Inari is so popular too, because it's like everyone can see themselves in Inari. But um, even in, like, the Buddhist sense, they represent Inari as, like, an androgynous sort of agender um, bodhisattva character, cool. which a lot of them are, like, the ones you see with all of the arms and, like, all of yeah. the faces. It's very, it's very, like, psychedelic in a way, you know, of, like, it almost looks like tracers when you're... Yeah. Yeah. Um... We did drugs. <laughs> we did we did drugs, but like that kind of that kind of character. Um so really I like uh sort of a non-binary sort of god. Because I love that it's both like an old man and a young girl. Yeah. Um 
It's giving so, gender is a spectrum. Right. And so the different regions and like the people from different professions, which we'll get into that later on, um, they all have their own takes and interpretations of Inari that suit their needs, right? And that's like shocking to someone with like a Christian upbringing because the, what they kind of push down your throat is that like there is only like one correct interpretation of God and it is our interpretation and we are trying to spread that far and wide. Um, and if you think anything else, you're a heretic and going straight to hell, you monster. Right. Um, and it's like not heretical. It's part of it. Um, and, and I do love it. And they're like this triple aspected deity. And the aspects are literally like maiden, wise old man, and unknowable cosmic emanation. Which, that's very David Bowie, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is, like, was Bowie a, a human manifestation of Inari? Um, I, I'm, I'm for it. I'm for it. Also, like, early David, like, red-haired David Bowie was giving off a lot of very Fox vibes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but speaking of David Bowie, I do think, like, a good way to frame Inari and, like, a conversation around Inari is, like, eras, right? So we've got this early era, which is, like, 500 of the common era and like probably earlier where Inari is sort of a farmer's deity. Um, so their origin story is that they came down from heaven on like a gigantic flying white fox when Japan was like fresh, like fresh out the ocean. Right. Okay. But like, can I, what the fuck? That's the coolest entrance of all time. Right. And so it seems that baby Japan has sort of an opposite of a Garden of Eden story. So like the newly formed world was swampy and wet and horrible. And on top of all that, there wasn't much good food for anyone to eat. So the people were experiencing chronic famines. And then Inari flies down on a fox like a glam rock icon tosses the people rice to grow and with one hand and flicks a cigarette off into the swamp with another and is like here you go babes like rice it's gonna make society happen like, and, thank you mother and then he probably flies off somewhere else to be cool right um and that would have been absolutely that except rice did end up being kind of a big deal in Japan not especially, but, like, it was a big deal in Japan for a very long time, right? Um, and belief in Inari as sort of this rice god, this agricultural god that um, sort of gave people rice to grow and, and sort of his um, protector of the, the agricultural, really uh, the working man, right? The, the guy that's out in the rice paddy just growing rice all day like that's a and you got to think like the way that they grow it with with the flooded fields and the not flooded fields and making the little walls and like all of that is just very hard very backbreaking work um so Inari is really like looking out for for the little guy 
right? But then rice kind of um, becomes money, right? But we're going to talk about that in a minute. And we should pause here at farming because this is probably where the fox comes in, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this agricultural deity and foxes are lucky for the rice farmer because they eat the rats. And if you have something eating the rats, then the rats aren't eating the rice and you have more rice and therefore more money, right? Because rice is used as a currency for many centuries in Japan's history. Um, and, you know, like, it's a sign of extremely good luck to see foxes out in your rice paddy, because that means that the rats are, are kind of being taken care of. Um, so it seems like a very natural thing for this agricultural god, this farming god, to have foxes as their sort of spiritual messengers, right? Um, also, you know, because it's kind of like generally a farming deity at this point, Inari also catches on with tea growers, which as we all know, tea later on becomes a big deal in Japan. So, but rice was the king. Rice was money. Money is power. The daimyo or the warlords, um, they needed Inari's blessing to keep things running, right? Like this this rice goddess, this kind of backwoodsy rice goddess. Well, now rice is money, and money is the basis of this society that is kind of forming around. And, you know, central to all of this is sustenance, and it's rice, right? Like, rice is in literally everything. Um, and so then you have the warlords are getting in on it. And they're the ones that are, like, becoming powerful clans and, like, becoming kind of, like, um, samurais and shit later on. Like, this is kind of, like, the proto version of that. So they're all kind of fighting each other. You know, it's kind of like when England was, like, a million little countries. Countries. Yeah, kingdoms. I mean, there was, like, there was a part of global history where that was just, like, what people did. So, you know, this is, like, the them figuring all of that out. Um, but so now, now the warlords are in on it, and then now the warriors are in on it, and then now the blacksmiths are in on it, right? And, like, also shout out to, um, actors and prostitutes, because now that we're in politics, because the warlords are in on it, now we're kind of getting into the upper classes, too, and what do the people in the upper classes do? They enjoy cultural moments, so, like, and prostitutes. And prostitutes, which can be a cultural moment, you know. Um, and so then so then these kind of like entertainers are getting in on it as well. Um, and then at some point, they switch the currency from being rice to being money. And then now like the bankers and the finance bros are in on it as well. Um, and Inari is just spreading, spreading, spreading this whole time and, and sort of creating all of these different emanations of the same deity with all of these different faces. That's so uh, cool. And I just, I, I mean, you know, there's something that's so, like, foreign about this concept. Um, 
for someone who was raised with a much more rigid and depersonalized spirituality. Um, yeah, this idea that it's like a choose your own adventure with a deity is very antithetical to like American evangelicalism and even just like basically any stream of Christianity in the West. And so there really is like this endless stream of different Inaris. And I think that's so powerful. Um, but something that I do keep thinking of with all of this, you know, story is like the cunning of foxes and how this idea of shape-shifting to suit like the individual that you are sort of patronizing. Um, it, it really is so powerful. And it's like, it seems like it's such a good strategy. Like I could see like something, something with very much like a fox spirituality coming up with something so clever that it basically, you, you know, it's like it made it through the rise of Buddhism. And a lot of Buddhist temples were dedicated to Inari and therefore protected by Inari. And then when Japan decreed that they were so here's the cool thing about, like, Japanese spirituality, though, is that even though there was, like, a royal decree to separate Buddhism and Shinto in, and, like, to not have this kind of blending, blendy, blendy thing, um, they sort of openly defy this and still just kind of do it. And then they, they kind of ascribe Inari presence at, in Buddhist spaces to um, this, this other Buddhist deity who's like one of the seven lucky gods and also flies around in heaven on a fox um but you know it's almost kind of like yeah it's and everyone's just so everyone just plays dumb everyone just basically plays dumb um, like what me i'm just a dumb baby i'm not combining religions i, I would never be combining religions like that's so I'm crazy a dumb baby that doesn't make sense sorry <laughs> <laughs> um but I, there's something that's so successful. I think it's like the moral of the story is that you have to be flexible. And adaptable. And adaptable. And like ultimately you replace other gods, basically. And you just hold this wide sway. And there is something that's a little tricksterish to the whole thing. But like in a delightful way. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 giving Loki a, just a little bit. Yes. Hondofi. Is is kind of what I think. Like it's a little it's a little tricky. It's a little sneaky. Um, I'm like I'm getting a little Loki, a little Hermes. Yeah, like. and it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um I think to go from having like farmers praying over their fields and having like little shrines out in the rice paddies to like multi-million dollar companies building Inari shrines at their corporate headquarters in one traceable and unbroken continuum is pretty cool. Yeah, that's super dope. Um, but now a break from Shinto. So Shannon can talk about Indigo. Yeah, I'm super stoked um, because, y'all, I, I have ADHD and I love plants. So obviously I have decided that this year is the year that I'm finally getting into making plant-based dyes for textiles um, because apparently 
I don't have enough to do. I was like working 50 hours a week doing a podcast. That's not enough. I need to also dye my own clothing. So I'm I'm embarking on my quest to like grow indigo. And I thought this was a really fun excuse to kind of do indigo on the podcast because I'm really early on in like my growing experience. And I was like, well, I have to research and learn about it anyway. So like, why don't I just tell y'all about it? So like, again, full disclosure, I am very, very, very early in growing this. So I am not I'm not speaking from a place of experience or expertise. Right now, I have like one to two inch little seedlings that I've just moved outdoors, which so far they're not dead, uh, but they're, they've sprouted, they germinated, which is a lot more than I can say for the fucking passion flower seeds that have done nothing in weeks. Oh, nothing. Uh, on that note, I do have to tell you the moonflower seeds ended up um, being funk. No! So after a couple more days, um, I'm sorry, this is such an important update. So after a couple more days, after the first one put out a little root, neither of the other two had put out a root. And like the one that did root, the root had turned brown. Well, the ones that didn't put out a root, you know what you should do? Just um, nick them with like cuticle scissors and just plant them. Well, I did I did just ultimately shove them in a pot because I'm going to see what ha- what will happen. Yeah, why not? Um, well, that's a bummer. But uh, I think we're I think we're already growing a moonflower though. And by we, I mean my roommate who as like a straight kind of broy guy is much better at taking plants than I taking care of plants than I am. Well, that's okay. Plants have no gender. Um <laughs> so anyway, fuck those passion flower seeds. I'm really bummed that they're not growing, but um, I did get my seeds for my indigo from a vendor. They're called um, Northern Dyer and she's on Etsy. I got a multi-pack of seeds from her and they include um, Coreopsis, French Marigold, Woad, and Japanese indigo. Um, and I have to say, <clears throat> before anyone comes for me, I know that Woad is considered invasive in California. It's staying in a pot on my patio, and I do just want to, like, really reinforce that I live in an urban complex. I'm not, like, nestled up in a woodland, Um, but I just was like, I don't want someone to hear me talk about woad and be like, what are you doing? It's fine. It's going to be fine. Um, (laughs) But I digress. So we're talking about Japanese indigo specifically. Um, It's Persicaria tinctoria. And this is a plant that has, to to literally give you the understatement of the year, it has a long, rich history. <laughs> um, it's kind of hard to get down to like a, like a reasonable length of an episode trying to edit through talking about indigo and its history, but here's me doing my best. So the Egyptians, this was one of my favorite fun facts, used indigo to add pizzazz to the mummification process because they would add blue border stripes to the mummy wraps um how cute is that it's giving me like sailor yeah (laughs) anchors anchors away boys (laughs) um but the earliest written instructions we have for making blue dye is from a neo-babylonian uh cuneiform tablet and there are archaeological like textile fragments from all over the world that have indigo on them 
I, I have to talk about etymology and the etymology here is a little icky um, because indigo is derived from the Greek uh, indicon, which means something Indian. Well, there you go. Feel, feels a indigo. little weird. Indigo. Um, in the Middle Ages, woad leaves were what they used in Europe to produce uh, indigo for wool. So people started making like a boatload of money. But at the same time, tropical indigo concentrate was being transported across the Middle East, like literally in camel caravans, because it was used all across Islamic territories um, for dyeing fabrics, both day-to-day fabrics and also, you know, like religious fabrics. And it was also eventually made its way to Europe to be used for paint. If you are someone that's into like touring old cathedrals, there's actually a shade of blue called Baghdad indigo that you see in a lot of like historical cathedrals. And it's it's made from indigo that came by way of the Middle East. So of course, the European East India Company is going to get in the mix. They always do. So in the 1600s, we see the start of kind of this really gross rivalry uh, between like plantations in the West Indies and the Americas trying to get the most competitive indigo pricing. They, they've actually discovered in like modern, pretty recent history, some shipwrecks off the Caribbean, uh, shipwrecks, like, shipwrecks in the Caribbean that still had like usable indigo because it was sealed. Like, so there's, they're finding indigo in the Caribbean. Can I just say, I really, and, and like, it's making me gag to say it, but like, I would love like a little beach shirt dyed with shipwreck indigo. I mean, yeah, I would. Like, I need, yeah. I need that for my seaside witchery. Uh, fair, fair. Um, <laughs> so after Europe, you know, yada, 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 lost those colonies in the 1800s, Britain basically decides to bogart the world's indigo trade by establishing like hundreds of indigo factories in India. Really, like people historically have just always gone bananas for this stuff. It's like from day to day stuff to sacred stuff to ceremonial garb. Um, my other favorite fact is that modern art historians discovered that some painters from antiquity would paint undercoats of indigo blue so they could use less of like the hella expensive lapis lazuli pigments. So they used it to like stretch their expensive pigments. And you'll see like even today, like watercolorists sometimes will use indigo because it flows better than mineral pigments. And you also see indigo used in all sorts of illuminated manuscripts. And I have to say, like, a petition to bring back illuminating books. Like, why did we stop making illuminated manuscripts? I, why? Everyone wants a picture book. Uh, people also have used it on their skin for a long time. So for things like tattoos, for adornment. There's that, like, there's some weird myth that I think they, like, some people scared Caesar by painting their face with indigo. It's not true. But what is true is that Bluebeard dyed his famous beard blue with indigo, which had the added benefit of repelling insects and also disguising gray hair. So, you know, keeping it tight, Bluebeard. Um, so... It's like, it's a really, really cool plant that has an amazing history. It's been all over the place. So of course you want to grow it, right? Because I wanted to grow it. I was like, oh my God, indigo, how cool. So (laughs) 
there's like a bunch of plants that we get indigo from, but today the one I'm specifically talking about is the Japanese indigo, Persicaria tinctoria. Um, I honestly don't know if it's the long leaf or the short leaf variety. Um, it might be noted somewhere, but I didn't see. So, you know, we'll see how long the leaves get. But I started mine indoors. There are so many, like when you look online for seed starting, there's a bunch of like really cute little seed trays you can get. And like, that's fine. But I just want to like be straight up that I either use old like egg cartons once I finish the eggs to start my seeds or just my like Pyrex food storage containers because uh, seed starting mix is pretty sterile. It's not like something that's got a bunch of like worm castings and stuff. So I mean, I just like wash the containers after. I mean, if you're squeamish, adjust. But like, I don't know. I feel like the idea of buying a bunch of plastic seed starting trays feels super wasteful. And I am not here for that. Um, these seeds also, it's really important to note, they're not going to last forever. So indigo seeds, usually you need to use them within about a year to have decent germination rates. So like you're not, don't go buy a Costco amount thinking you're getting a lifetime of indigo seeds. Like buy just what you need because you're not going to be able to take it with you after a year. So once you get whatever you're going to start your seeds in, put your like seed starting medium in there and then put your seeds on top and very lightly cover the seeds with soil. They're super tiny seeds, y'all, like the size of the head of a pin. Like they're not, they're not really big. So um, if you bury them under dirt, they're not going to be able to get out. Like a general rule of thumb with seeds is that you only want to put as much soil on top as like to match the height of the seed if that makes sense. So that's why like things that are like squash, you bury deeper than you do things like carrots. Anyway, so once you've got your like medium on top, give them a little spritz, make sure the soil doesn't dry out, but really you're just gonna like cover it and leave it alone. Um, the bonus, if you're using a Pyrex like me is that it has a lid already. So when I start seedlings in there, I just kind of like open it up every day to give it a little fresh air. Um, the stuff I read said that these take two to three weeks to germinate, but mine came up in a week. And look, before anyone is like, oh, Shannon, you're in California, your weather, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all, we had a blizzard warning in the Los Angeles mountains. It's been cold. So like really, these, these do germinate decently quick if you're somewhere that isn't actually freezing. So they don't like having their roots disturbed a ton. So they recommend only like transplanting once or twice. For me, I've actually already potted them up into their final container. Um, because when they're in my Pyrex, the way I judge when I'm going to plant my seeds out is until they're like little cotyledon seed leaves are like about to bump up against the lid. That's is very scientific. That sounds, <laughs> I mean, scientists take notes. Yeah, scientists take notes. Um, if they're about to bump the lid, they're ready to be transplanted. <laughs> um, so I'm, but I'm also like, I'm a survival of the fittest kind of gardener. So I know that by March, I'm not going to have any freezing here, but it's like still a little cold for it. But I'm like, if you cannot survive chilly March in Los Angeles, you're not the plant for me. If you're someone that lives somewhere colder, you might need to wait a minute to put them outside um, or, you know, get real Spartan about it. 
So once you have like a few little leaves, they say you should pinch out the preliminary center leaves to help encourage them to get bushy. And these guys will get to be like cute bushes and you can grow them in containers. And I'm, I love the idea of having like two big containers of indigo, like, like on either side of your porch. You know, I just think that'd be super pretty, but you, you just like, pinch out those like little center cotyledon leaves so you're not trying to like pull off big new growth you know be smart about it but they love nitrogen so if you are someone that has garden space these would be good to like you know if you want to grow with like beans or peas but again i i'm growing mine in containers you can just get like good old-fashioned organic compost for things that like nitrogen, even grass clippings can be good. Just make sure you know where you're sourcing it because even though you're not going to be eating the indigo, I don't know, there's something that just doesn't feel good about continuing to spread pesticides around through like water runoff. So they do need to be sheltered from wind, <laughs> which is the one thing I'm like actually really worried about here in Los Angeles. I've kind of figured out, I think we're my porch placement is going to happen because the Santa Ana's go wild. Like the wind here last night, even it, it made my, you know, my two big Hoya hanging plants outside. It knocked them together at one point. It was like that windy. Oh goodness. And they're heavy. Y'all like, these are full grown Hoyas. These are big babies. Um, so, you know, make sure they're like protected. They do well in partial to full sun. Most things I've read though, say they don't love to be totally like baked, so be smart, know how the sun acts in your climate. These in nature grow like along water. So, you know, like either little rivers or ponds. So they do need to stay consistently watered. Don't let them dry out. Like these are not gonna do well if you let them get too dry. I think it's another reason they're actually great for container growing, especially if you're somewhere drought prone. And just like, as an aside, I realized, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but I think everyone, but especially people that live where there are droughts, like, please try to find ways to catch, like, water runoff. So, like, a good example is when you turn on the shower and you're waiting for it to get hot, all of that cold water could go into a bucket that you use to, like, water your plants and stuff instead of just going down the drain. So, you know, think about that, especially for things like this. I mean, they've, um, been, so they've been doing that in Australia for years, you guys. Like, let's get with the times yeah let's I mean let's do better uh I I mean and for me it's like the bathroom is upstairs and also all of my house plants so you know it works um so you're gonna uh want to keep them moist but again like don't drown them I, I always feel like I have to say this because I'm like I don't want someone to keep their plant wet and be like Shannon it died I'm like well the roots still need oxygen but it does need to stay wet um, okay. <laughs> Every six to 12 weeks, you're going to need to feed these guys. Don't go crazy. You can overfeed plants, even ones that really love nitrogen. One of the signs of like over, over fertilizing is yellowing leaves. So keep an eye on that. And the way that these, you know, reproduce is they lay down branches and then the branches have nodes that root. So they can kind of like crawl. Some people even like plant them like potatoes in mounds to like grow the indigo down like the sides of the mounds. So, you know, choose your own adventure. I, I think that's kind of cool. Um, but 
they do need a very, very, very long season to flower. So not everyone is going to get to see them flower. Um, it's fine. The flower is actually not where the dye is, but they have these like cute little pink flowers, but they often won't flower until like October. So they, they really, if you're somewhere that gets cold, you're probably not going to get flowers out of these and that's okay. Um, if it does flower, they're self-fertile. So you could very well end up collecting your own seeds, but folks in more tropical climates can allegedly keep them going for multiple years, but a lot of people are going to just treat these as an annual and it's fine. Y'all annuals are okay. So to harvest it, you're going to want to cut the stems about half a foot above the ground. And then the stems like start regrowing after that. And apparently if you have a good year, you could get two or even three harvests out of your plant. But I saw this really great tip from this website, um, naturesrainbow.co.uk. After stripping the leaves from the stems, they put the leafless stems into a bucket of water with like a little bit of liquid fertilizer. And then the stems grew another set of leaves. <laughs> so it's like harvest round two for your indigo. Um, because the stems don't have like the, the content that creates the dye. So you like, you have to have the leaves. So I, I just love the idea of being able to literally get a second round from the same stems. Like, how cool is that? No, I mean, that's, so, that sounds very, like, thrifty, too. It, it is. It is. So I, I will say, um, if you are one of those people that is somewhere where they're going to flower, you do want to harvest the leaves before they start flowering. Because once plants start flowering, really, all they're thinking about is, like, surviving into another generation so focus on on that uh get them get them harvested before it goes to seed if you're going to be dying with indigo though um one of the ways that you can figure out if the leaves are ready is actually kind of cool so take a you like take a couple of leaves you don't cut the stems or anything just take the leaves and then crush them up in a blender or like whatever container and get some like white fiber like just white cloth add it to that mix, like kind of rub it around, leave it for an hour, pull it out, give it a rinse, and then see if the color takes, right? So that's like, it's basically a way for you to judge how much um, color content there is because indigo is kind of magical because it doesn't look blue when you, when you make the dye, which we'll talk about later. But once you know that you're ready to harvest the leaves, you know, you're going to go and you cut your stems and you're going to take the leaves off the stems and put them right into an ice bath. That helps you make sure you're preserving the pigment because you have to use it fresh. Like this isn't a pick the leaves today and die tomorrow. Like, no, you need to like pick it when you're ready to use it. So after you've got the leaves all in your like ice bath, this is, um, you're going to put them into a blender, right? So take a blender, fill it about half full of super cold water, and then add like half of your leaves, blend it up real good. And then the second half fully blend it, just add the leaves in stage stages. So you can make sure that it doesn't um, like that. It actually breaks everything down. And then after that, you strain the leaves out and you can set those aside for something that's called like a reduced indigo process. Waste not, want not. We're thrifty with indigo. But then once it's strained off, you can add your wet textiles to like the pot or container and stir them for like five minutes to make sure everything's evenly coated. Um, there, there are a lot of schools of thought on how to pre-treat textiles before you dye them. Um, 
the Dogwood Dyer has great blog posts. And I've also seen a lot of recommendations for the book, um, Singing the Blues with John Marshall, who's this like really famous indigo person from Northern California. Um, so once they're in the bath though, like you can leave them in there for up to 20 minutes. And that's when like the magic starts. But really the biggest impressive thing is like once you take them out. So once the items are like out of the bath, you they're exposed to oxygen and the more that they're like basically drying out that's then you're going to see the fabric change from like kind of a springy yellow green to your indigo color so it's like either aqua or jade or even i saw some that got to like a robin's egg blue that was really cool um and then after that you just like rinse it with cool water and hang dry so that's like one of the most straightforward ways to do like a dye bath with indigo but you can also make leaf patterns. So this is something I'm really excited about. Um, the, the most like simple way to do it is to lay them out in a pattern, like the leaves and whatever kind of cool pattern you want. Put your damp pre-treated textile on top of it. You take a hammer and you hit it. So you're like kind of crushing it. It's it's kind of like a bastardization of like the super, it's like uh, tataki zome, which is done on washi paper and like a piece of rubber it's like a really delicate process but this australian textile artist whose name is india flint uh, coined the term hapazome in 2006 to describe this um what i refer to as a wanton but very seemingly satisfying process like i can't imagine a more fun afternoon than just like beating some indigo into clothing with a hammer oh that does sound fun right um hammering things is fun i mean look we love violence um (laughs) so india flint has this great book called eco color if you want to read about some other like really cool experiments she does um she's like really into natural dyes so i'm i'm really interested to get this book actually it sounds super cool um so that's like a little bit about indigo how to make some indigo dyes how to grow it but we're not going to talk about all the ways you can make dye with it because literally like I, there are people who have written books on this. Indigo is very complex, but let's talk about some like magic, right? Cause this is also a witchcraft podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, they're Saturnian plants, which love, I love Saturn. Um, they are said to be good for magic around closing doors, binding endings, rebounding and revenge. Um, which feels so dark and dastardly for something that makes things so pretty. Right. But it's like, sometimes looking pretty is revenge. Truly. Uh, And also indigo is poisonous if you eat it. So maybe that is the connection there too, because just kill someone dead. Um, There's, so there's like the actual indigo as the plant. And then you can even think about color magic with it too, if you're like doing textiles. So it's blue, which is about like intuition, journeying within, Um, you know, that said, I was kind of like feeling the vibe for like using it in magic where you're consciously like ending cycles or closing chapters to like manifest new things, you know, but but magic when you're like actually responding to your intuition to close a chapter, not like you're just pissed and want to like do some, you know, fuck you magic. We've all done freezer spells. It's okay. <laughs> but but that's not what indigo is about. Um, so 
obviously like you can grow the plant, meditate with it, get to know the plant, um, to work with it magically. But I love the idea of making your own like textiles to use for different magical workings. So like you could make an altar cloth with indigo and use that for when you're doing this type of spell work, like spell work on binding magic or doing like rebounding. Um, if you hate someone, send them a gift, attach the tag with indigo string. There's your revenge. That's dark. Love um, that. I, and you can make like making indigo dyed string, especially with like your leftover indigo leaves. I'm like, that's such a good way to get magical materials because like you use string on all sorts of shit. Um, I also found a lot of recipes online for making indigo water paints. And Nick, what about using homemade indigo water paint for your magical writing? Ooh, now see, that's that's a titillating idea. I'm so glad you are titillated. Um, the, honestly, the options are in, endless, guys. Like, indigo is super cool. I'm really stoked to grow it. Um, if you do anything with indigo or have done anything, have any suggestions, like, please let us know. Like, send pics. I'm I'm so pumped about this. Um, so my sources today were uh, the Northern Dyer, Ballywick Blue. <laughs> dot com, uh, the dogwooddyer.com, circlecreativecollective.org, and this awesome article from Geographical UK called Indigo, a Magical Dye by Jenny Balfour Paul. Oh, that's my cousin. <laughs> by, yeah, by, I, by my cousin by marriage. I'm I'm I really respect that she hyphenated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so for this week. We're doing a magical creature, kind of. We're talking about the kitsune or the fox spirits. Um, and to be perfectly clear, foxes are in fact real. Uh, I have seen them in Austin, Texas. Do you remember the fox that lived in the field next to the house on Fall Creek? Um, I, I don't recall that, but I mean, I also, you know, it's like there's a lot of foxes in Texas. We're, we're, we're lucky. Yeah. We're, we're blessed with an abundance of foxes. Um, but kitsune aren't just foxes. They're bona fide magical creatures in Japanese mythology. So here's the thing. Fox spirit folklore almost certainly predates formalized worship of Inari, going all the way back to the earliest Chinese folklore, which is like pre- Japanese colonization because uh well I mean you know it's like do your own research about Japanese history but like they they were a Chinese colony at one point sorry yeah, I um, mean it, that's it's just what it is that's their it's, history it's their it's their history um anyway so this kind of like really really ancient folklore um is where we get the nine-tailed fox of Pokemon fame, truly, um, and stories of fox brides. Like, all of the fox bride stories are, like, really, really old, okay? Um, and there are always these elements of, like, seduction, trickery, and, of course, shape-shifting. 
but the kitsune myth becomes deeply ingrained in Japanese culture on the back of Inari's success as a deity. Because there's always the foxes. The foxes are with Inari from the very beginning. And then as Inari kind of shapeshifts into all of these different emanations of as a deity, the kitsune are always right there, right? And the fox spirits and like fox imagery is just very, very much in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, Can I, I just have to interrupt real quick with this super, super cute um, fox craft that I saw in the fall that I want to recommend for people. Um, leaves, especially sycamore leaves, have a very fox-like shape, don't they? I saw this mm -hmm. great tutorial for drawing like a cute little cartoon face on sycamore leaves and like hanging them up in your house and I died. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, I I that was a, a worthwhile intrusion into the <laughs> into the kitsune universe. I feel um, like you would approve. So, it's but it's not just the flying white fox. Um it's also the wild foxes which are like guardians of Inari shrines. Um, and also they become Inari's sacred messengers because of that, right? And so those ones are, are sometimes depicted as like being white foxes, which foxes actually come in a shit ton of different colors. And actually, if you start breeding them in captivity, they start getting coats like dogs in like a bunch of crazy colors. So they're diverse. They're very foxes di are diverse. Foxes are diverse. Um, but what I think is interesting, though, is that the morality around the kitsune, which are these fox spirits, seems very similar to that of the fae. Uh, and some of the stories have very fae-like qualities to them about bending time and, like, tricking someone into marriage and, like, all this stuff, right? So obviously Inari's messengers are, like, good and wholesome kitsune. Uh, and there's... A lot of stories about good intention, Kitsune. So it, it kind of seems to depend on if you're perceived by them to be a good person or not. And again, they do not have the same morality as us. They're, they're fae. So it's not necessarily like religious piety or anything like that, 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 you know, like humans might think it makes you a good person. They, they have their own system. So it really seems like random to us. To them, it makes sense. It's unknowable. But um, if they think you're a good person, then you know they'll, they'll give you a, a gift. Or like, in one case, they give this one guy, they have the whole village make sweet potato soup because he was like nice and well-liked. And he's like, oh, I can't get enough of this sweet potato soup. And then they bring him out to this rural village. And then the whole village makes sweet potato soup out of giant sweet potatoes. Um, I'm sorry, where can I sign up for this trip? I'm right. like, where's the day excursion to sweet potato soupville? Yeah, I want to go to the sweet potato soup village. Um, but there is sometimes this element of like trickery. Um, and sometimes it's like a genie wish. So it seems that, like, innocent, good-natured people are spared this treatment, um, while, like, prideful and malicious people are intentionally harmed by malicious compliance. Mm. So, like, if oh, you were... malicious compliance. So it's, like, so it's like, if you were evil, they would feed you the soup until you exploded? Yeah. 
Um, okay, so for example, though, uh, someone unscrupulous might make a deal with a kitsune to bring fortune to their home and family, um, which the kitsune and his clan uh, carry out by stealing from the deal makers' neighbors. So they are technically holding up their end of the bargain, but now this unscrupulous person is an object of suspicion and even feels like maybe guilt for impoverishing his neighbors to enrich himself, right? Um, so there's, it always ends kind of very badly for the bad person. Um, and on top of that, the Kitsune clan, having held up their end of, end of the deal, albeit in a tricky way, now it's impossible to kick them out because you made a deal. And now the Kitsune clan um, takes residence in your house, possibly forever. So, um, okay, and there is a surefire way to get what you want, though, because um, the Kitsune carry around when they are in fox form, mind you, um, a spirit orb, which is sort of like a magically energetic pearl, or perhaps the Kitsune's soul. Oh my god, speaking of fucking David Bowie, Labyrinth? Right, right, right. Um, which they carry around attached to their tails as like jewelry or in their mouth. Um, so if you can somehow trick them into giving you the orb or sneak up on them, then their supernatural powers are at your command, having out-tricked a trickster. I mean, yeah, it's like mad respect at that point. Right. Um, but also, a lot of the Kitsune stories are a little horny. Um, and there's definitely also this, like, succubus aspect where the Kitsune transform into beautiful women to seduce weak men. And I'm going to be telling a story um, about that right now. Um, because obviously we have to we have to include at least one of the Kitsune stories in its entirety. And... I, I just have to say before you start that um, I feel like anyone who ever watched the animated Robin Hood is not surprised that foxes are sensual. Right. Um, and so the story goes that in the year 896, a man named Kaya no Yoshifuji was left alone at home while his wife visited the capital, which for normal people would be a great time to catch up on your reading or get some work done around the house, right? But this man was really horny, and obviously he had to do something about it. Um, Poor boy. And he just really could not keep it in his pants that long. So he goes out for a stroll. And, um, of course, he's cruising for some tail while he's out and about. Though, as we're about to find out, he might end up getting more tail than he bargained for. <laughs> but, um... So, uh, Yoshifuji ends up seeing a beautiful young woman also out for a stroll. Um, right around twilight, as luck would have it. And this man has the audacity to stop her right there in public and proposition her to go home with him. Sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? What a twat waffle. Um, and of course, she plays it very demure. And she says that it would be improper. 
And uh, she even makes to sort of pass him and walk away. But Yoshifuji is a creep and he like grabs her wrist and he's like, okay, so we'll go to your place then. Where's that at? And um, of course the girl knows exactly what she's doing. So she gives sort of a sly smile and motions to um, a very nearby, very, very fine house, um, which Yoshifuji might be a cheating idiot pig man, but he does have his wits about him enough to be thinking, hmm, that's a bit strange that I've never noticed this really nice house on my street. But what's he going to do? This is all turning out to be so easy, right? So he rests his two little brain cells and goes with her into the main hall. And as the servants gather around and dress them in fine house robes and get them all settled and comfy, he realizes that this beautiful young maiden must be the daughter, actually, of this very, very fine house, very stately. And so not only is he going to get laid, he's going to be... um treated to whining and dining in the top fashion of the day so he's very stoked you know he's like doing titty bumps a caviar right <laughs> and they get down to business very sensually and even though smooth jazz is a 20th century invention i do think that we can assume that whatever the feudal japanese version of smooth jazz is what they were like playing in the next room at the yeah, very that least ethos for sure um and whatever that is probably something with like a, a flute a lot of lot of japanese flute music out there um it was very sexy just know that okay it was very very sexy time um but i'm not a furry so i'm not going to describe it right i'm just describing i'm sure you can look it up online if you're that interested i bet it's there for you i'm just <laughs> describing the kind of music that's playing um and the next morning her father comes down to breakfast and he's like it is destiny that you're here yoshifuji we want you to be part of the family we want you to stay forever will you marry my beautiful daughter and um you know yoshifuji he's a shithead He's like, yeah, he doesn't even give it a second thought. Of course, he's never mentioned that he has a wife and children, um, seemingly a few feet away uh, down the street. And, you know, he agrees. He marries He marries this young girl that he met only the night before. Um, God, I, honestly, his wife is better off. And they do seem to be truly and happily in love. And a few years later, they have a son. And Yoshifuji declares that this is his new heir. And he legally disavows his son with his first wife. Um, you know, as he's not, he's now sort of thinking as his old wife as his first wife, right? And his old life is kind of drifting away into the past. Um, I mean, this and, is a long con. And the years seemingly have slipped by and he's forgotten about his old life completely. And, you know, him and the girl are in love and they do teddy bumps and they have beautiful, beautiful children. So smart, so good at school, right? Um, so we're going to do this classic Hollywood transition and we're going to flash back to the day 
he had gone home with the young girl. But we're going to shift the narrative to what was going on at his house, right? So, of course, this man was a disgusting, cheating pig man. And nobody at his house thought it was really strange that he should disappear for a night. Or even two. But eventually, his son did get worried. And so he sent for his mother to come back from the capital and had organized search parties in the meantime. And of course, when Yoshifuji's wife returned a few days later, she sent for a priest who could divine his location. Um, and here's what happened on the 13th day after he was gone. So Yoshifuji was in the great hall of his new house when a man with a long staff shows up and while the rest of the household is like running away seemingly in fear, this like guy is just walking into his house and like poking him in the back out the front door. Um, and he very quickly finds himself um, in his old house's backyard facing his son and his wife and this priest. Um, and he explained to them that, you know, him and his new wife uh, had been married for 13 years and they had a son who was now his heir. And he basically said, like, fuck you, old family. Like, why did you bring me here? And I'm going to be staying there from now on. And then, you know, he's like gesturing back towards where he'd come from, this very, very nice house that he had been in. And um, he's actually gesturing towards his storage shed in his backyard. <laughs> Um, and, you know, all at once he gets very, very disoriented. And so what had come to pass was that when the priest came and he had done all the rituals, it revealed that Yoshifuji's location was somewhere in the storage shed in the backyard. And when a servant was sent there to look, um, dozens of foxes ran out from underneath. And so they're like, oh, we're going to look underneath the storage shed where all these foxes came from. Uh, maybe he's under there for some reason or another. So he's like poking a stick in there. And then eventually Yoshi Fuji comes out with this wild look in his eyes in the same clothes he was wearing when he disappeared 13 days earlier. Um, and was just, it seemed like he had just been rolling around with these like dirty wild foxes under the shed for 13 days. What a weirdo. And sort of like when he was abruptly pulled out of his fantasy and, you know, had been ex it had been explained that he had only been under there for a few days and he was hanging out under a shed with a bunch of foxes, you know, like he, I think on some level, realizes that he had been tricked by the kitsune. Um, but, you know, his brain is broken from here on out because he has this memory of spending 13 years living this beautiful life with this other family. Um, and so he spent the next decade trying to like figure out the trick of getting back into the fantasy world under the storage shed. Oh, and um, <laughs> also everyone realized that he was weak and a bit of a loser for so easily coming under the spell of the Kitsune. And all the while disavowing his human family so easily in the bargain, like without even putting up a fight. So they all treated him very badly, even though he was mentally ill until he died. I love that story. Um, and, you know, there's kind of like a reverse version of this story where, um, you know, it's not about like cheating and leaving your family. And like, actually the dude ends up being in love with the lady Kitsune, and like even after it's revealed that she is um 
a kitsune and the jig is up and the, all of the foxes has to leave she still comes back every night and takes human form um and like checks up on her kids while she's sleep while they're sleeping or whatever that's kind of um, cute it's kind of cute it's almost like it's like the rom-com version yeah it's or, or almost kind of like twilight where it's like i don't care that you're a fox i still love you you know like i'll deal with it right <laughs> yeah um <sighs> But I, what I will say, little show and tell time, one of the sources I used for this research was this um, large book of Japanese folk tales that I brought with me on vacation this summer, um, which only had one thing cir- circled in the, ta- uh, the table of contents, um, which was uh, foxes and um, foxes too. So there's two, <laughs> two parts kind of spread out uh, two foxes. Um, so we could do, um, you know, there's one, two, three, four, five, like seven more kitsune stories I could tell on some other episode. So, um, sweet. Uh, but with that, we have a taroscope. Do we want to do baby asks before taroscope? Yeah, rate, review, subscribe, download the episodes, y'all. Um, if you want to talk to us, email us, wandsandfronspod at gmail.com or Instagram message us at wandsandfronspod. Uh, recommend us to your buddies, you know? Spread the wands and fronds love. I think hey. that's it. Yeah. So yeah. who's the, who's the taroscope for? So today it's for cancer. Oh, and if the you look, little crabby babies. Yeah. If you look at the, um, if you watch the video, I'm pulling from our cat tarot uh, cards that have like the astrology signs on it. And it's a black cat with um, a crab snapping at his tail, which I think is a very cute illustration. So for you, this is actually the first time I've used this new deck. I got um, my husband and I were gifted a Nightmare Before Christmas tarot deck uh, because we like Nightmare Before Christmas. So of course, like that's what people get us stuff of all the time. Anyway, so I used the tarot deck for the first time, y'all. And I swear to God, I shuffled super well. But for you, Cancer, I drew the Fool, which I love. Um, so it's represented, obviously, by Jack. And the card has, like, Jack and Zero, which I do love Nightmare Before Christmas. So for y'all, it's like the Fool is the beginning of the journey like you're about to start something and I'm really excited for you because your season is coming but you you have the chance to like kind of go off on a new adventure I feel like the fool especially because it's like Jack Skellington it's giving me like amazing like kind of childlike wonder vibes for whatever this new thing is so Enjoy following your bliss, mommies of the Zodiac. And I I always have loved the Fool card. Like, yeah. I think the Fool is such good energy. But I feel like maybe that's the very idealistic side of me as an Aries-Sag combo. Yeah, I mean, I have a Sag midheaven. So I, I have, I do love Sagittarius. These cards are really cute. I mean... Like, not all of these, like, decks are, but the back of the cards, I think, is really pretty, too. Um, And the artwork is cool. The Hanged Man is Santa Claus. It's Sandy Claus. Oh, that's incredible. 
anyway okay so that's that's that for y'all though cancer babies i'm like super excited to hear about all of the fun new stuff you're doing because that's that's what i'm getting go take over a holiday and do it better indeed indeed well um what do we say to all the foxy bitches out there Ooh, you foxy bitches uh blessed be you foxy bitches Blessed be you, Foxy Indigo bitches. Bye. Bye. It's like I went into work the other day and had the most fucking frazzled start of all time because all of my passwords expired (laughs) at once because just like I snooze all the time, I say reset later when it's like your company requires you to reset your password at an completely unreasonable interval yeah i do uh i do hate that i remember that from both fedex and web.com um and it's just like i've only got like three good passwords in me yeah and you know what if you guys want me to actually ever do anything other than have to keep resetting my password i need you to get (laughs) off my fucking back i am a person not a machine. I'm sorry that Brenda and accounts keeps clicking on phishing email, but like I shouldn't have to pay for that.